Before we get into today's episode, I want to thank a couple sponsors that we were able to secure for this season, uh, season five of the Scuttlebutt. It's exciting to be able to get sponsors for this. Uh, we're really thankful for them. Uh, the first one, you might have heard them already, is D&D Metal Recycling and Auto Salvage. The Scuttlebutt's been pairing with D&D for quite some time. Uh, D&D began as a small hauling and used auto parts operation in the Pittsburgh area in the late 1970s and has grown into a full service metal recycling company with two locations, Lawrenceville and Tarentum. These are state-of-the-art scrapyards with deep roots in the community and a strong commitment to the service of their customers. D&D accepts all types of metal, both ferrous and non-ferrous, that may be generated by industrial manufacturing, construction and demolition, small commercial entities, as well as individual customers. They have a wide variety of material handling equipment and are capable of managing any job in a timely and efficient manner. You can contact them for quotes and availability at D&D, &D, that's D and D, autosalvage.com. Thank you, D&D, &D, for supporting this podcast. Uh, been wonderful collaborating with you, and uh, we're looking forward to, to being with you uh, all through season five here. We'd also like to thank a new sponsor for the Scuttlebutt, Tobacco-Free Adagio Health. Tobacco-Free Adagio Health is dedicated to preventing and reducing tobacco use and increasing education about tobacco hazards and secondhand smoke. Of course, the best way to be tobacco-free is to never start. And we'll be sharing more about the many programs offered by Tobacco-Free Adagio Health in the future. You can check out more of their work at tobaccofree.adagiohealth. That's A-D-A-G-I-O health.org. Tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org. Org. Um, really excited to have sponsors on board uh, for the scuttlebutt, and uh, I hope you enjoy this upcoming episode. These foreign fighters coming here is like a microcosm of the encouraging thing that is coming out of this Ukraine invasion, right? It's that the rest of the civilized world has stood up and said, no, like this is not the way we do things anymore. Welcome everyone to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Pittsburgh, PA, whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. Today, joining me will be frequent co-hosts, Catherine Guyon and Ryan All. They'll introduce themselves here in just a second. We're going to go over some Women's History Month articles that we found, and we're going to dive a bit into uh, the Ukrainian crisis. Now, a little differently, we're going to talk a bit about all the resources that we've been seeing and places for you to be able to check things out, but we also end up talking a bit about the foreign fighters that are going to be going over uh, to the Ukraine. Um, it's a really interesting two areas areas that we feel like we can cover, uh, and we're still hoping to get an expert on to talk more specifically to the crisis and maybe the geopolitics of it, see where they feel that this conflict is going, where it is headed, um, but stay tuned for that. Hopefully, we can bring that to you, and as always, please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you are the first to know whenever we bring out new episodes. Thank you so much for your support of the podcast, and I hope that you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. My name is Ryan Allman. Army veteran. I work for the VA and uh, I am happy to be here on the scuttlebutt. Thanks for having me. Hi, everyone. Happy to be back again. My name is Catherine Guyon. I am a news anchor by trade, um, but I am a civilian who is just very passionate about veterans and sharing veteran stories. Glad to be back once again. Awesome. Thank you both for joining me once again as co-hosts. Uh, we're uh, making the scuttlebutt a lot more topical now, so we have more headlines to go over. And there's no shortage of headlines as we continue to dive further into them. And we will be getting to Ukraine later in the program. Uh, 
uh, an interesting uh, take on, on Ukraine, I would say. Uh, but first, we want to honor um, Women's History Month. And Catherine, you have a couple great resources uh, for our audience. I do. So as a female of the group, I felt that I would be remiss if we didn't um, spotlight Women's History Month because, you know, obviously there are so many, not that men aren't doing great things, guys. I don't want you to feel slighted, but there are so many women doing so many wonderful things um, in this world. And kind of through my news life, I, we've been doing it locally where I work in the Ohio Valley, sharing a lot of um, stories of women who have had an impact. But I felt we would be remiss if we didn't mention all the women in the military that are you know, groundbreaking and basically keeping up with the guys, you know, I, I feel like people say this all the time, but I'm, I'm going to say it. It's, it's tough to be a girl sometimes, you know, and then to do it um, in a military culture, which obviously is becoming more, I guess you could say, you know, female friendly and women are really making strides. But I was just kind of looking through some of the articles when I was preparing for the scuttlebutt and the Department of Defense actually created a Women's History Month Spotlight. Um, Sean, I don't know if you can pull it up, but there are just stories and articles from all kinds of different publications that um, highlight the some of the amazing things that women have accomplished in all different branches of the military. There's one about um, former women in the military who are now um, Olympic gold medalists. Um, just a lot of a lot of really awesome things. So I thought we could take a, a couple seconds and, uh, you know, just let's hear it for the girls, I guess. <laughs> totally. And this is this is a great resource. And if you're listening to the podcast as opposed to watching it, we'll have links on our website uh, for this. I, I, I found this to be great. I didn't know about this, Catherine, until you brought it to me. Yeah, I kind of found it by accident. Um, I'll be honest. But uh, there's also like, if you keep scrolling down, like when folks are working at home, I'm a big fan of like, photographs and pictures and the way they tell a story and there are some really awesome photographs down there of kind of women in the military throughout the years because I think you know nowadays you think of women in the military they're enlisted but it goes back years and years and years of the way women supported the military without actually being able to be enlisted I mean you think of like I think that picture there is like the Rosie the Riveters um, you know, and the way they were supporting the military kind of during World War II and even before that. So I, there's a lot of uh, great history. If you're not familiar with the history of women in the military, uh, I would suggest like clicking on some of these kind of whatever piques your interest, I would say, or if you are a, uh, you know, you are a fan of a particular branch, there's kind of um, something for everybody, I would say. I'm glad you brought this up too, just even scrolling down this page, because uh, we recently on our VBC Live program um, had on Elizabeth Ann Helm Frazier, who has been a huge advocate for the 6888. 6888 being, if you're watching here on YouTube, uh, this picture here, um, the unit of uh, females of color in, in the army, they were tasked with uh, distributing mail from a huge warehouse during World War II. And they were given six months to do this. They did it in three. The army said, no way, can't do this again. They sent them to Europe said, you have six months to do this warehouse. They did it again in three. Um, and they recently were awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. Now, uh, for longtime listeners of the Scuttlebutt, if you haven't watched our live programs on the VBC on Monday nights, I'm gonna take that episode, I'm gonna splice it up, and we're gonna have a full episode for uh, Phyllis Wilson and Elizabeth Anhelm Frazier uh, that we're gonna release as a, a Scuttlebutt episode because the interviews that we did with both of them, uh, both trailblazers in their own right, um, is a really incredible interview. So we thought we'd bring it out as a podcast as well. Um, but uh, needless to say, Liz was 
over the moon um, for that gold medal to be awarded uh, to, to the 6888. And uh, congratulations to them because this is recent news. This is within the past couple of weeks that that gold medal was, was awarded. Um, but I also asked Anne, or sorry, take two. But I also asked Liz during that interview how she felt about being a part of that, that legacy. Because um, being a veteran of color, um, you know, you think one half of 1% of the population serves in the military, cut that down for e even further for the number of women who serve in the military, and then cut that down even further for the number of women of color that serve in the military. So uh, it meant a lot to her. And, and I'll, I'm going to save her answer for the future podcast, uh, because she, she just spoke so well to it and just had such passion and, and a pride in her voice. Um, uh, so I hope that you as an audience member will come back and watch that episode whenever we release it. And I like to think about some of this stuff too, like as a female, you know, there's, uh, I can't remember the exact quote right now, but there's like a saying, you know, like we stand on the shoulders of, uh, you know, someone who came before us who was greater. I mean, like I look at those women and I think like it was hard in certain times to break those boundaries. And like in a lot of respects, I wouldn't be where I am today as a female, like even in civilian life, not not in the military without like the brave women who came before me. So I just thought it was really important to highlight um, some of their accomplishments. And then I started thinking I was reading a story about women graduating from um, as army rangers. And I, I'm training for an obstacle course race myself right now. And I like can barely build up my upper body strength. And I'm thinking like, how are these women keeping up? They're superheroes, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's very true. And, and there are, uh, I think what's really important to point out, right, uh, is that there are more and more women joining the military. They are making up a bigger and bigger population, both the veteran and, and military population. Um, as Catherine just pointed out, uh, you know, women uh, can go to Army Ranger School. Women are allowed to be included in all, brand, in all jobs within the military, including combat arms, which used to not be the case. Uh, from a historical perspective, women could join the military, you know, in, in the second half, really, of the 20th century. Um, but they were largely uh, precluded from joining, you know, the combat arms, the infantry, the artillery, the tanks submarine duty, things like that, anything where, you know, it could be, they could be, you know, put in danger or the people uh, felt that, you know, they couldn't meet the same standards uh, as men. And, and that has been done away with. And uh, for the most part, um, you know, it's been very successful. I think what we're, what we're, what we're finding is that um, uh, women want to serve just as much as men do. Women are capable of serving just as much as men are, um, and they're able to do the job. Um, and it's, and it's great. And I think it's been a, a positive move, um, uh, in that direction for sure. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So now, uh, there's an article here recently, Catherine, about, um, the hundredth woman, is that correct? The hundredth yeah, woman. Yeah. That Sean just had up. Yeah. The hundredth woman to go through, um, U.S. Army Ranger School. And I mean, I, I just, I was reading, you know, what it takes in general to be in the military is an accomplishment for anybody. I don't care you know, what your gender is, but like to see, I think more women wanting to answer that call and wanting to go into not only the military, but like kind of the hardest and most difficult challenges of it. I just find that really inspiring. And I think it paints a, a picture for younger girls as they, you know, as they grow that, you know, you really can do anything. And even if it's something that's been traditionally done by men, you know, go get it, girl. That's, I just find that such an inspiring message to send to, you know, perhaps the uh, service members of tomorrow that may be female. And it'll be interesting to see, like, by the time, you know, our kids are of that age, what the military looks like in terms of, you know, 
uh, how many women are in it. Catherine, did you have any particular role model growing up? And, and then second part to that question, as you've dipped more into the military uh, you know, sphere, is there someone who's sort of bubbled up to the top as someone that you, you mainly look to as like, wow, she, she was pretty incredible? Yeah, I mean, female role models for me were not, you know, they were civilians. The only people in my family that were in the military was my grandfather. But like, you know, role models to me were my my grandmother, you know, my my grandfather that served his his wife. Like my grandma was so strong and she was just, I mean, she was just tough, but she was so sweet and nice. And there was nothing that woman couldn't like manage at home, you know, she was just tough. And my mom is also just like such a strong person. And she has never been one to back down from a challenge at work. You know, she's told me stories where, you know, maybe she was passed up for a promotion or things like that. And she just kept going. But then I hear these stories of like, I've been fortunate to interview, you know, quite a few women who have served in the military or even some military spouses, which I, you know, those women also play quite an important role. And when I look at you know, people that would be role models or who I just find really inspiring, I would put kind of, it's hard for me to pinpoint one person because that group of females, that's really like breaking barriers and, you know, so strong and dedicated to what they want to do. I think more for me than admiring a person, it's admiring a lot of people that have set on that path to truly do what they set out to do and know in their brain that you can accomplish anything. And Ryan, um, you told a really interesting story about having to train soldiers about how to deal with the women in their unit. Oh, sure. So um, uh, my first half of my career, a little over actually the first half of my career, I was an infantry soldier. So at the time it was it was all all men. Um, when I uh, went through um, officer school and became an officer, I then became a, a logistician, a logistics officer. Uh, so moving into an area that was co-ed. So there I was I was in charge of uh, male and female soldiers. And at the time, I was a, a logistician for a field artillery unit. I know this gets a little confusing, but the field artillery unit that I was supporting with logistics was still at the time all male. It was a combat arm, so it was all male. Um, it was in that time that the policies changed and females were then allowed to serve in combat arms. Uh, and my battalion commander came to me and they said, you know, hey, Captain All, I would like you to brief uh, the, the other company commanders of the artillery batteries um, on, you know, how to be best prepared to, to deal with this. Because um, they're going from having an all-male unit to now incorporating females. And we think you kind of like have some some experience that might be beneficial here right both mm. both uh from my time in the infantry and then also you know switching over to leading a co-ed unit and i was just like well you know this is going to be a short talk right because <laughs> i just you know i went in there and I, I spoke with all the other company commanders and i said well it's very it's very simple right like you treat them as soldiers right they are here to be soldiers and you need to treat them as soldiers. You need to hold them to the standard that's accountable to, to do their job. And you shouldn't treat them any differently, right? They, they are expected to do their job and they should do their job. And there's all these other secondary and tertiary concerns. You know, everybody's worried about, you know, um, physical relationships and, and how are the, how are the bathrooms going to work and, and where's, where's everybody going to sleep and so on and so forth. Um, and those things, they, they work themselves out. If you have a good command climate, if you have a good positive, uh, you know, chain of command and you are running a unit the right way, those things will take care of themselves because you shouldn't be out there worrying about those things. Anyway, you should be out there worrying about doing your job and accomplishing the mission. And if that's the case, 
then everything is going to work itself out fine. The units that, that are, are going to have problems are, are the ones that are, are probably messed up anyway. Uh, and I want to, I want to point out two quick misconceptions here, right? Like people get so, every time I heard somebody argue against women going to the combat arms, it all had to do with, they, they won't be able to do it. They won't be able to keep up with the guys, so on and so forth. And I'm like, well, let me tell you something from personal experience, right? Uh, number one, I saw this in my eyes. The, the women who join combat arms want to be there. Like they really want to be there, right? So they are going to work their work their hardest. And I saw, I had first sergeants come up to me afterwards and was like, I wish I had a squad of female soldiers because they're the ones that I do have are working so hard and outperforming you know, some of the, some of the guys in doing their job because they really, really want to be there. Obviously they're trying to prove themselves. And number two, let's not act like there's not guys in all guy units who can't keep up with all the guys. Okay. There are turds everywhere. Okay. So let's not just pretend that every guy is an Adonis Superman. Okay. Even in, even in guys, guy only units before women were allowed in, there is a handful of people who just can't hack it yet. Somehow they are still there. Okay. So let's just get those two things out of the way real quick. And uh, as Forrest Gump says, that's, that's all I have to say about that. We got like a mini Ryan Rance right in the middle of a scuttlebutt. That's fantastic. I know. My gosh. We usually save those for the movie episode. Yeah, there, there you go. go. That was an appetizer. <laughs> as a father of a young daughter, I need to get that off my chest. Right. I can't, I can't sit there and tell my daughter she can be anything she wants to be. And then on the other hand say, well, you know, accept for these things okay yeah there, so there's my there, there's my no, there's, there's, there's no there. exception there's no exception right. you guys you guys have daughters i have a son but like you know your girls can do anything they want they're you know you just gotta work at it that's what my dad always told me like you know my dad is the true girl dad and that's what he always told me and my sister like whatever you want it's fine just pick it but if you're gonna do it do it you got to work at it you know yeah. i'll leave a couple expletives that were in there off the scuttle but <laughs> but you don't you don't half bleep anything <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely um and that last article the hundredth woman to graduate from army ranger school uh that came from task and purpose and, and i really feel like jumping over to our, our sort of second topic for this episode is uh is ukraine um and we weren't able to get anybody. I'm going to be honest with our, our audience is that we weren't able to get any, any specialists for this. This is a very, this is an ongoing uh, conflict. Everybody we've reached out to either uh, respectfully declined or maybe just didn't get back to us. And I think part of it is because they have their platform and they're going to work their platform. One person that I do want to highlight from that, that we did invite, though we did not hear back from is Chris Cappy over at Task and Purpose. Um, this guy is is I think really doing a great job on YouTube. We're gonna link to one of his first videos because he's been following the war from the beginning. He's an army veteran and spent time in Iraq and uh, really has taken time to break down the conflict from the beginning of the invasion through. And he's uh, doing a great job of talking about both sides because a lot of what we get is the Ukrainian side and a lot of what we're not getting is the Russian side. So he's trying to do his best to cover both angles of this. And um, I, I feel comfortable um, uh, suggesting him to our audience because I've watched, uh, and it's up to about five episodes now, he's doing like one per week and he's using really great graphics, really great resources to show what's, what's going on on the ground, ask questions, say, this is, you know, 
it, as the tanks are rolling down, he's showing video. He's like, look, these guys know what they're doing. He's giving good and um, good comments. Ryan, you've watched a bit of his videos, yeah. you know, as an army veteran yourself, how do you feel about how he's breaking down what's going on? Yeah, I think it's important to note that he, I think the, the primary objective of what he's trying to do is give an accurate representation of what is happening on the battlefield. It's well not said. all, right, it's not all Ukrainian victories, it's not all Russian victories, there is a, there is a mix going on here, and he is doing his best to parse through what information is available um, to, to do that. So I think he, he, he is doing some really good stuff that a lot of people aren't doing, right? Um, we've seen a lot of human interest stories, we've seen a lot of, you know, uh, over-the-top strategic views, a lot of socioeconomic geopolitical, uh, you know, commentary and, and, and what, what's going to be happening here. And he's just really trying to, he's really digging down into the nuts and bolts and saying like, what's happening on the ground. Um, and, and it's been really interesting, right? There are, there are things that, that he had, that I've seen in his videos that, um, you know, I was not, I was not aware, right. That, uh, of what is happening. And, 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 you know, to be honest, just, just how dire, right. The situation is right. Like, is it going slow for the Russians? Yeah, it's probably not going as fast as they wanted, but it's it's still going. And once they start achieving some of these tactical objectives, um, the strategic situation for Ukraine is going to become much, much worse. Because when you talk about having cities surrounded, logistical supply lines cut off, um, you know, eventual probably, you know, uh, domination of the skies, right? It's, it's going to, they're going to suffer those casualties uh, and, the, and the Russians are going to suffer those are willing are obviously willing to suffer those casualties to achieve those goals. Um, and then it's and then once they get into a certain position, it, it, the, the defense of Ukraine may may um, become untenable if they can reach all of those tactical uh, all those tactical uh, victories. One thing that he broke down in the video a couple times so far is that long supply chain that's just creeping 40 kilometer long, you know, is creeping along into towards Kiev. And um, he made a really good point because it's something that I don't hear about on the other side in, in the media is the, the correlation between that and us invading Iraq in the sense of uh, how slow it was going up to Baghdad. Like this takes a while. This isn't something that you just blitz in and take a capital. Like it, it takes a while because you can only go so far as your supplies are able to resupply. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, uh, in a very real sense, right, um, uh, the vast majority of, of that convoy and, and of most military convoys are logistical units, right? They're not combat units. So it doesn't matter that the trucks full of ammo and gas are sitting 20 miles away from Kiev, right? They can only they can only advance up to to support the tactical fighting units in front of them. So if those tactical fighting units haven't moved into Kiev or, 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 or pushed the forward line of the battlefield forward, then those then those logistical units have nothing to do. And you're certainly not going to gather them all up in one place. You know, uh, he did mention in the video, right, they, they were on the road and then they moved off the road into defensive positions as it probably became obvious that they weren't going to be moving anywhere anytime soon. So you should probably get in a position where you're less vulnerable. Um, and I think that's that's what we see happening. And uh, uh, he, the, he it was really, I think, really uh, smart of him to, to point that out. He does welcome a lot. Sorry, Catherine. He does welcome a lot of comments too. I, I appreciate that about his his videos is that he welcomes people to not only just argue with him, but just to you know talk with him in the comments. He wants to engage on this, um, and I, and I can see why he's like, you know what, I'm just going to keep to my own and do my thing um, because that's it, it, like I said, it's developing. So he's sort of working through it 
on his own and you know with I'm sure the resources of task and purpose behind him. Um, but uh, I'll make another comment about his video in a second. Catherine, go ahead. No, I was just going to say I feel like I would be doing a disservice to my journalism background if I didn't mention this because you know when we talk about subjects like you know Ukraine or other like national and international stories that happen. Obviously, like we're here on the scuttle button, we're referencing like tried and true websites that have been proven to be, you know, accurate and reporters that are accurate and people who know what they're talking about. But um, as I was thinking, and I've been talking with a lot of people here at work, like this is such a social media driven war in a lot of ways. And there's a lot of information out there that's not accurate. And I feel like I get on a soapbox when I do this, but I think it needs to be said in the day and age of social media is like, just be careful where you're getting your information of and especially before you then disseminate that information to somebody else because that's how like you know that can do a disservice not only to your own knowledge but like to you know just your worldview of things so like obviously if we're referencing um these videos and i and articles and i appreciate that they all came from like actual sources i just feel like as a journalist we have to make sure that we vet things because i can't tell you how many times on social media since this war began in the last couple of weeks where you know you see one thing and then an article comes out that goes oh that's actually from such and such like years and years ago you know yeah. so just and you'll see again everything that we're going to reference is you know, tried and true verified articles from legitimate news sources don't like just be going on like, you know, Reddit and or Twitter and taking that as fact, you know, and obviously like there, it, that's an important tool too. like the fact that we're seeing a lot of this stuff in real time from folks in Ukraine that are on the ground and, you know, that's providing such a unique perspective of this. I mean, even Ukraine's president is on Twitter and social media and Instagram making videos, but like just be careful of where you get your information from. That's just purely the journalist in me talking. But, you know, I like, I appreciate those, you know, the videos that we're talking about too, because they have credible backing behind them with somebody who knows what they're talking about and knows military and kind of understands the situation. So, so I'm, I'm sure you, you heard about this, Catherine, but, you know, this, you know, you're a journalist, right? And um, in Russia, it was recently like basically outlawed to, to say anything against the war, to report it in a certain way. I, I'm not sure the exact specifics of it, but it, it sounded pretty serious that they were, you know, journalists could face jail time. Um, what, what, did you, what did you think of that? So my first reaction to it is, oh my gosh, how could that happen? Because I can't imagine as a journalist in the United States, like not being able, I mean, obviously I just can't get on TV and say whatever I want. My job is to report the facts and that's what I do, but I just can't imagine living in a place where I don't have the ability to dig into stuff it, stuff and find the truth. Because as journalists, that's what we do. We hear about a story and there's side A, side B, and then there's the truth. And that's what we try to come to is the truth. But my second thought of it was that's scary. That's scary for those journalists to maybe want to tell the truth and they can't. I've seen a few things of journalists who have, have said something and they've been yanked off TV or, you know, punished in some way. I just, you know, I find it really scary. And then my third thought of it was, you know, we're grateful as not even just journalists, but as all people that we have that freedom of expression. You know, we talk about social media has like a good and bad side. Like obviously you can say whatever you want, but sometimes that leads to hateful stuff that leads to false information, but at least we're here and we're able to have the right to invest, say things and then further investigate things into what is the truth. And that goes back to my previous comment of like looking for the truth. If you're a journalist in Russia, you can't do that right now. And that is probably frustrating to them. It's probably scary. 
Um, you know, they could be scared not only for themselves, but for their families. I just, there's a lot of uh, emotions with that, but probably mostly gratitude. The fact that I'm here in the United States where I'm able to have a voice that could impact change and look for the truth. It's that's, that's scary. It is scary. I read that a lot of journalists, uh, in, in Russia are resigning or quitting, um, just to, to get out of that, that atmosphere. Um, I can't blame them. Um, and that's the first thing to go is your, is freedoms. Um, though Russians probably don't have many freedoms to begin with. Yeah. And I mean, journalists are, are dying and getting injured in Ukraine. I mean, there's been a few, not only from, you know, that are American, but also Ukrainian working for like Fox News and, and those like major media outlets. I think the most recent one I saw was a Fox News employee. But like, I mean, journalists are over there dying and getting injured and putting themselves in harm's way to, um, you know, bring you the truth. So that's why I also find it that we have to like, you know, respect it. And as, as we consume it, as people here in the United States trying to figure out what's going on, like we have to respect the truth and try to make sure we're reading the truth. Another comment about Chris Cappy's uh, YouTube episodes on Ukraine is uh, he caught a lot of flack after the first, and I, I, I'm, I'm sort of a victim of this too. I, I watched the first episode and I was like, he's making a lot of jokes and he's sort of like, you know, it felt like he was making light of the situation. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, at first I watched, I was, I was sort of like, well, why is that? But, you know, he actually speaks to that later on in I think episode two or three of this series that he's doing on Ukraine. And he says, Look, this is this is gallows humor. This is something that civilians probably don't understand. He's like, I make jokes about this because if I don't, I'm gonna break down about it. He's like, because this is a terrible, horrible situation. But that idea of gallows humor is something that maybe our audience hasn't heard of before, or they might see a veteran making a joke about it and not understand why. Um, because we as civilians might see it and say, this is terrible. How could a joke be made of this? And I thought maybe Ryan, you could talk to gallows humor of just what why. Why are jokes made in the field? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, when, you know, when you're in a situation where you could die, right, <laughs> um, it, it is a, uh, a great form of stress relief uh, to make these types of jokes. And once it's spoken, once, once these things are spoken, then it, then it kind of loses, um, it's, it breaks the tension and it, uh, it acknowledges um, the danger that is there. Uh, and it, and it, and it takes that power away, uh, over you, right. Uh, it, it takes the power that that fear has over you. Um, so it's a very, very common thing, especially in, you know, uh, combat arms units, um, to, to have, uh, a pretty, pretty, um, strong sense of gallows humor, you know, inappropriate jokes, all, all those, all those types of things, um, just to, you know, kind of keep people, uh, a little, a little sane, right. Um, mm -hmm. to say things that are, that are controversial or to say th things that are, you know, kind of just like, wow, I can't, I can't believe he said that, but definitely, you know, gallows humor is definitely something that helps, uh, re relieve, relieve stress to, to, uh, get that, get that out there and, and, and not, and, and lessen your fear really, because now it's acknowledged, right. So that's a that's just a note or a, uh, something for anybody who might flip over and and watch some of his videos. Um, you'll notice immediately that he sort of starts with humor, but then really you know gets into the nitty gritty of what's going on on the ground. And one thing I've really appreciated about it, about what he's showing is he's showing real footage, um, and tactically where mistakes are being made. Um, he, uh, he maybe makes assumptions on certain things. He's like, hey, the Russians are moving during the day. That could lead me to believe that they don't have night vision goggles. 
that's not cool because when I was in the army, that's what we had. That's what we did. That's doctrine. Like in the army is you're moving at night. Um, and so it's really interesting how he breaks it down from an entry infantryman perspective. Um, so, uh, hopefully you get get a chance to check it out. And if you have any thoughts or comments on it, please email me, uh, you know, Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org. But the other thing that I wanted to get to about Ukraine is there's been a lot said after uh, President uh, Zelensky talked about creating an international league of fighters to come over to Ukraine and fight for Ukraine. And I thought this was a really interesting angle. Um, because we don't really talk about politics here on BBC, it's very difficult to talk about Ukraine and what's going on. But this is something that I feel like we can really dive into. And I feel like a lot of news sources have. And I, I'm going to have a lot of links here in the description about uh, not only how you could potentially volunteer and fight for Ukraine, um, but some of the veterans that are over there currently fighting and the experiences they've had, both American and I believe there's, a, there's an article from a French veteran. Um, because recently, when um, if you've seen the news that uh, Vladimir Putin, Russia hit a army base, or at least a base that was close to the Polish border, um, mm -hmm. that base was housing a lot of these International League fighters, a lot of these foreign fighters that have gone over. Uh, so there's a specific article about an American veteran who said, yeah, I barely survived that. Um, there's not a ton of them there, as in like thousands and thousands. Uh, I'd say read the article, look into it just to see like, you know, where they are, where they're stationed. But I thought the main question that I had about this was, boy, that's so interesting that an American veteran would, would you know, retire or leave the service, see this call for action and decide to go fight for the side of Ukraine. And I thought it was so interesting, um, scary, and why? And one of the things that sort of bubbled up was, and I thought it was, this really kind of, blew my mind in a sense was that, Ryan, you guys were trained to fight conventional warfare. And one of the veterans said in this article, like, all I've done is fight insurgents for the last how many ever years, I'm going to go fight a conventional war, which is what I was trained to do. And I, and I thought I'd ask your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, um, before I answer, before I answer that, I just want to make a, a broad statement about um, how this these foreign fighters coming here is like a microcosm of the encouraging thing that is coming out of this Ukraine invasion, right? It's that the rest of the civilized world has stood up and said, no, like, this is not the way we do things anymore. Um, at great expense to themselves in a lot of different ways, uh, economic pain, political pain, uh, you know, physical pain, like they are the rest of the world has stood up and said no. And this is like a microcosm of their commitment of, of the way people think to go to a combat zone and to say, I'm going to put myself in danger for this greater good. And uh, that at least is the one encouraging, one encouraging thing that, you know, maybe we're not getting mil directly militarily involved, but the rest of the world has stood up and said, this is not, this is not acceptable. And we are, we are willing to accept uh, these pains in order to, to make this stop. Um, uh, to answer your question, yeah, it's it's been a very, uh, we, we trained, when I first joined the Army, we trained, you know, it was conventional warfare, it was an old field manual called Field Manual FM 7-8, right, it was, it was written on how to fight the Russians, right, <laughs> that's what this field manual was about, that's how we were initially trained, and then over the course of the global war on terrorism, we, we changed to COIN, C-O-I-N, counterinsurgency, uh, so then we trained a ton on that. Um, and then over the past few years, as the, as the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have been winding down, there has been a, a fundamental shift in the way we are training the military. And that is back to peer-to-peer, -peer, in the woods, you know, fighting 
from your fighting positions, moving, living in the woods, fighting, you know, tanks, armored personnel carriers and infantry with artillery and, and a full spectrum of, of combat operations. So that, that was a very significant change. I mean, there were people who were in the military who had spent their entire time learning and fighting counterinsurgency warfare. And it, had, it was a bit of a shock to the system, right? You had to like change it. You have to change training. You have to change the way you equip people. You have to change the way you organize units together. Um, there was uh, these integrated battalions, which, you know, rather than, why do we need tank divisions, right? We're never, we don't need a tank division in Iraq, right? We need, we need a, 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 these combined arms battalions that have a little bit of tanks, a little bit of armed personnel carry, a little bit of artillery, and a, and, a, and a little bit of infantry all mashed together and we can drop it in there as a singular unit to do all these capabilities on a smaller scale because we're not fighting a person who has the ability to to defeat you know 12 tanks well now if you are thinking about fighting a near peer and you see how many tanks are on tv that the russians have like you need a tank division you need uh, an artillery you know brigade to to counter the capabilities of a peer like that so um it ha it has been this has been in the works for you know at least six years the way the military has been changing the way it's been training and equipping its unit and uh and i guess kind of now we see why i'm sitting and listening to all this and i'm, I'm i thought this when we first the three of us first discussed that we were going to talk about this topic and then i was sitting here thinking about it now and I was pulling up something else in an article that I wanted to bring up and I just had this thought that like you know you think of like why people join the American military and I think of the way that I describe veterans that I talk to and a lot of them talk about you know you do it because you love your country um, and you want to protect it but then I saw this quote in this one article on task and purpose that says like this particular Marine who's still enlisted, um, but he went over to Ukraine. He said he wanted to help innocent people and fight for freedom. So I guess it goes really beyond like a love of country. It, it's about for, I would imagine, I guess, from reading these articles for a lot of people, you know, they want to help other people. And I guess that was a, a, a perspective that I, I, I had looking at veterans, but I hadn't thought about it in a while. Like it goes beyond just like love of our country when you enlist, like you want to help other people. So I just thought like, I don't know what the right word is. Like I was just struck by that deep, um, you know, desire that people have to help people they don't even know. So just a love of freedom, love of yeah, freedom. Yeah, just like just, a, a love of freedom and helping says like in, innocent people or people who are in danger. Like you just do whatever it takes and that selflessness, I guess, really always strikes me, but I, I, it just really did just looking at this other, you know, article and as we started talking about it. So we should mention though that the U.S. government is not encouraging people to do this. They are encouraging all Americans to get out of Ukraine. They are committed to not committing troops to Ukraine, though we have now over, I think, over 100,000 troops uh, stationed in Europe, which is the most since World War II. Um, and uh, uh, certainly selfless is the right word because Russia has said any foreign fighters are not under Geneva Convention protection. They are considered mercenaries and they will be treated uh, differently than you know, soldiers of Ukraine. Um, you know, in one of the articles, it mentions that this uh, American veteran who went over uh, was attempting to sign uh, uh, with the Ukrainian army to change that status so that he's not considered a mercenary. And that's, 
Ryan, is that's very different. Uh, you know, and that's a lot bigger than my knowledge and my pay grade is understanding Geneva Convention. But um, Russia, to be able to treat you like a mercenary, what are, what are they allowed to do? That, um, uh, that, that wouldn't really make any difference, right? The Geneva Convention doesn't, I, I mean, there are certain statuses that apply, but, but it's also just about how you, how you treat prisoners of war and, uh, and, and the conduct of, like, it didn't matter, um, you know, when, we, when I was in Iraq, it didn't matter if we captured an Iraqi army person or a person who was from some other place or if they were a terrorist or whatever. It, it, it regulates our conduct. On, on people who are now prisoners and under our custody. Uh, and to be honest, like who, who in their right mind thinks that Russia is going to treat Ukrainian prisoners of war, whether they're army or civilians or mercenaries in their eyes, uh, well, right? Their conduct up to this point has been so deplorable um, when it comes to the targeting of civilian areas that, that I, I, I wouldn't, uh, that would be at the back of my mind. Right. Uh, as far as what Russia thinks that and says they're going to do against so-called mercenaries. So um, I, I would not uh, that, that would not uh, that would not be a large consideration for me. Wouldn't change your calculus to be like, I'm over there. I'm an, I should sign with the Ukrainian army because it doesn't really matter. They're going to treat me the same way that they would treat. Correct. That yeah. Soldier. Um, this continues to develop. I'm sure we are going to continue to cover this uh, on the scuttlebutt in different ways. Um, finding different ways to, to speak about this conflict. And if we do end up getting a specialist on, um, and if you know somebody as an audience member that would like to come on uh, and talk about this, um, either militarily or how this could develop, you know, we'd love to hear from you. Um, you can email myself again. Um, but I thought that it was pertinent to bring up these, uh, this idea of foreign fighters because just like Catherine, I was so struck by the idea of a passion for freedom and, and fighting for it no matter where it is. Um, and I think part of it still is also the idea of like, I'd rather fight them over there than fight them here. Um, so, it, it, you know, to, to enlist like that uh, and just go is, is very brave, um, very brave and very scary. Um, so I, I wish them the best. And a question that I had too that is answered in one of these articles that we, uh, that Sean, you had pulled from Military Times that I'm sure you're going to link is like your first thought. And I remember discussing this in, in the newsroom with everybody else I work. I'm like, okay, well, Americans are going over there. They can't just be like going over and showing up in Ukraine and saying, you know, how can I help? There is like, as I was reading, there is actually like a process to go through. I'm looking at this article, you know, to apply to the embassy and get your documents. And then, you know, there's something about an interview, which folks can read in this um, article from Military Times. But like, there is a, you know, there is a, is a process. Because like, when you first think about it, I, I was struck like, okay, well, how does, how does one even do that? You yeah, know, no, Ukraine's like, not looking for like me to come over and, you know, act. Yeah. <laughs> they want people with military experience, you know, fighting. Yeah, and there's actually a process. Like, they have to go through and be documented. So just in case anybody else had that same question as a civilian, especially like me, which is just like, okay, you know, if somebody with that experience wants to go, they can't just show up. So there is actually, like, a process. Um. But certainly, we'll be uh, looking at this uh, again in a future episode uh, of the Scuttlebutt. Um, today, I just want to say thank you guys both for joining in, uh, for, for talking with us today. And um, I'm looking forward to, to future episodes with you guys. Same. Let's do yeah, it, let's do it again. This, yeah, this was a lot of fun. I think it's uh, super 
uh, pertinent content, not only for women's history, but also what's going on in Ukraine. And I look forward to, to discussing it more. And if you are an audience member who has only recently just joined us, please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes every Monday. Um, this is uh, Sean, Catherine, and Ryan signing off. Hope to see you on another episode. Thank <laughs> you.